The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, there has been a lot of activity this week at the United Nations among China, Germany, the United States, and lots of back and forth on human rights. We're going to pick up that part of the conversation regarding the the squabbles involving Africa and all the different players at the UN uh, in another show. But United Nations is going to be the focus of our discussion today specifically on peacekeeping. Now, last month, China issued its first ever white paper on United Nations peacekeeping operations. It's called China's Armed Forces, 30 Years of UN Peacekeeping Operations, and was released by the State Council Information Office. Again, this is the first time they've ever done this, and they've ever kind of expanded on Chinese armed forces participation in UN peacekeeping. It's been one of these areas that we know that they're active, but we don't know exactly what they're going to do. And these white papers really offer some interesting insights into the strategic vision that the Chinese have. Now, Chinese armed forces, according to the white paper, here's some facts that came out of this, have had 40,000 peacekeepers sent to 25 UN peacekeeping missions over the past 30 years. They've been deployed to 20 countries and regions, including many in Africa, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Liberia, Sudan, South Sudan, Mali, and the Central African Republic. And according to the white paper, they've also lost 16 soldiers on these various missions. Now, peacekeeping in general is a big issue. Together, the United Nations actually constitutes the world's second largest fielded army with more than 73,000 troops on missions around the world right now and an annual budget of over $7 billion. While that may sound like a lot, believe it or not, these guys are stretched very, very thin. In fact, UN officials say they are 8,000 troops short of what they've been mandated by the General Assembly to do. So just to give you an idea of where China fits in the overall hierarchy of UN peacekeeping, let me read you the top 10 countries who contribute peacekeeping soldiers to these PKO operations. Number one is Bangladesh with 6,731 soldiers wearing the blue helmet. Then there's Ethiopia, Rwanda, Nepal, India, Pakistan, Egypt, Indonesia, China with 2,531, and Ghana. Now, what's interesting about China with their 2,500 troops is that they are the largest contributor of troops among the permanent five members of the Security Council. That is a talking point that Beijing oftentimes brings up in this discussion. Now, interestingly, about that list of the top 10 countries, with the exception of China for the most part, all the rest are developing countries. So the question about military skills, technology, overall capacity, that too presents some interesting challenges. Okay, very quickly before we get going, China historically has played a very important role in peacekeeping. We've known this going back, you know, decades, but for the most part, they were in the back channels. They were playing a support role or an enabler role. Uh, But that's now starting to change. And there are two armed peacekeeping missions, one in Mali, the other one in South Sudan, Kobus, that really have put the Chinese up on the front lines. And again, they've gotten mixed reviews internationally, but for the most part, the Chinese are now really starting to play that up a lot more. 
they're also playing it up a lot more domestically. We've recently seen this kind of enhanced media effort um, with the release of a documentary on Chinese peacekeeping overseas. And in, in a way, I suppose the, the, the recently released white paper on, on Chinese peacekeeping also feeds into a, this kind of narrative of China being this proactive peacekeeping powerhouse, you know, um, which is which is an interesting direction for, for China to take, particularly in the moment when, when traditional Western um, countries are quite disengaged from institutions like the UN. So we wanted to find out more about this white paper and whether or not it's important, in part because it has a lot of implications for Africa and China's contributions to UN peacekeeping on the continent. And so we're thrilled to have on the program for the first time uh, Assistant Professor Courtney Fung in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. And she's also, by the way, an associate fellow at Chatham House. Uh, She wrote a paper last year called Providing for Global Security Implications of China's Combat Troop Deployment to UN Peacekeeping. Uh, Courtney, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Eric. And thank you, Kobus, also for having me. Well, let's talk about this white paper that came out. Before we get into the details about Africa or any specific missions and regions, what is the significance of this new white paper? And did you, as somebody who follows this closely, think that there was anything important in it? Well, thank you again. I mean, this is a good opening question, especially since you've given the overview about sort of numbers and where we stand today. As someone who sort of spent the last decade or so studying and thinking about um, the academic implications out of China's peacekeeping deployment, this white paper on peacekeeping is a very significant change. Um, I say this with somewhat, you know, tongue in cheek and a little bit of jest, but I think the question I have as an academic following this is why it took so long for Beijing to issue a white paper. Um, You have a variety of white papers on questions of national defense, on human rights policy, on food security, on COVID-19, and it looks like Beijing was truly waiting for the 30th anniversary of China's first deployment in order to finally issue a white paper. Um, Given that there's a white paper on a plethora of topics, it's quite interesting it's taken so long for us to finally get one just on peacekeeping. Um, Typically, peacekeeping has been included in sort of the appendices or the last couple of pages in the white papers on national defense. So this is a very significant move now to upgrade this to a whole detailed paper, just discussing and situating the relevance of peacekeeping as part of China's national defense um, apparatus, and also as part of China's global efforts as a global governance, global security provider to explain and to narrate the relevance of peacekeeping. And so I think I can sort of highlight three things about why this paper is significant. Um, First off, it's the most comprehensive repository of information on Chinese peacekeeping activities to date, at the operational level, at the policy level, and also at sort of the bilateral level in terms of really explaining what China is doing, not just as a funder, not just as a troop contributor, but what China is doing to try and encourage policy debates or to try and improve regional integration between UN level and regional organizations that are key peacekeeping players. So for example, there's you know a bit of discussion about China's role in facilitation with other troop contributing countries and also China's role in particular with facilitating and supporting African Union efforts regarding peacekeeping. Um, I think it's also very important, again, not to overplay this, but it's been quite interesting to see the relevance and the frankness discussed in this paper. Um, My other previous work has sort of noted this very strong narrative in the way that Chinese peacekeeping is explained and that it is a some positive activity for China. 
um, that Chinese troops go on peacekeeping mission. They're universally lauded. And this paper has a lot of that. You'll note there's probably a dozen references to the word love that comes up, how much there is love and support for Chinese troops. Um, but this paper does take a different turn in sort of frankly spotlighting the costs that have been paid by Chinese troops. They've paid the greatest cost. Some have been killed on mission. And they've been very frank about this in this paper, naming troops and isolating the times that they've been you know, killed on operation. And also in sort of highlighting the difficulties in these sort of two or three sentence snapshots, these difficult operations that Chinese peacekeepers have been part of. So I think for this, it is quite a significant change. And this is what I mean by this comprehensive repository idea. Um, secondly, I think it's also a very important move in that this white paper articulates China's peacekeeping activities amongst a greater narrative of China's role in creating and fostering this community of a shared future. Um, and peacekeeping is seen as indicative of China's global community building efforts. Everyone understands that peacekeeping aims to be a net positive good. So moving a little bit away now from the narration debate, but the way that peacekeeping is conceived of in global governance. And so the fact that China deploys to peacekeeping is indicative of an actual thing that you can point to, that you can touch, that shows that China is walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Um, it's also very interesting, again, how this peacekeeping issue is articulated. If you read the paper, there's a very firm thrust about explaining that the People's Liberation Army is a people's army, serving the people, loving the people of the people. And it's kind of unclear which people they're talking about, whether they mean their domestic audience back in China, whether they mean protecting the Chinese people abroad, whether they mean protecting other local nationals of the host state. And I think this is quite you know, a convenient and useful sort of rhetorical ambiguity there. Um, but there's still one more very interesting point in the way that these peacekeeping activities are explained in that they articulate that this idea of peace is in the DNA of the Chinese nation. And this is a very important effort made by the Chinese state to reemphasize again that China is inherently a peace-loving nation. And again, peacekeeping is one of the ways that you can show and you can indicate China's real efforts to try and instigate international peace. Um, so again, trying to sort of realize the talk, the talk, and also the walk, the walk part that goes with that. And then I think the last sort of, oh, please. Oh, last two things. And then again, on this sort of interesting thing about what it does say, again, this is a big change in that this report situates peacekeeping as part of a mediation, dispute resolution, conflict resolution, um, array. Normally, we think about peacekeeping the way that it's been presented in national defense white papers. It is simply an, an addendum to greater defense issues. This now has been situated towards the end of the paper. They're talking about much broader efforts about China's mediation and dispute resolution. So this is an interesting change. But in the last minute, before I know you have to you know, move on with the questions, I do want to emphasize, I think it's very interesting also for what the white paper does not say. There's no mention of the term combat troop. Um, there's a very short mention, only a paragraph, about the risks and threats regarding peace, peacekeeper safety, 
which we understand is already a growing concern for Beijing. Beijing has funded a 2017 study group on exactly this matter, again, out of a real concern that they want to try and understand how they can bolster and support um, troop safety while deployed on peace operations. So it's interesting here that it only gets a short mention in this particular paper. And again, I was kind of surprised that there wasn't more mention of China's um, female troop contribution or activities regarding the broader Women, Peace and Security or LC initiative agenda, which is still going on quite strong amongst the peacekeeping community. Yeah, no, it's an amazing kind of breakdown of, of, of the paper. Thank you. Um, so why do you think well you know kind of you you mentioned the, that that they waited for this kind of 30th anniversary um to to issue the paper do you see the paper as as a, a an attempt to to try and position china as as a kind of a leader on on these issues in the world well i think i see the paper as as one place where they've made it a very clear focal point for you to come and understand what china is doing regarding peacekeeping and i think to me that is indicative that china wants to be known itself as a focal point regarding peacekeeping, so that you don't automatically think peacekeeping and you think of Bangladesh or you think of um, Nepal, or you might think of Canada or Ireland, that your first thought should be actually China. And again, we've had rumors, you know, since 2016 on and off that China has expressed an interest in trying to lead the Department of Peace Operations. And I wonder if this white paper is sort of a setup now, an indicative of this potential rumor perhaps having any truth behind it. This has been sort of kicked about once or twice a year it comes up that there's expressed interest or there's some type of, um, I guess expressed interest is really the only way to put it, an expressed interest that China has an interest in trying to take over that headship which has been held by France since the 1990s. Um, and I do look at this paper as sort of really highlighting all the efforts that China puts in as a troop contributor, as a funder, as a policy player, as a coordinator, as a state that's trying to further invigorate the interest in peacekeeping, especially at a time where there is a decline in peacekeeping footprint, um, and that China is trying to position itself as sort of driving this interest and maintaining this particular platform and making sure it works efficiently and can deliver on its goals in a safe way. Over the past couple of years, we've seen a concerted effort by China to further engage multilateral organizations like the United Nations. So they are really, and they're going for these mid-level organizations. So they've gained leadership in the Food and Agriculture Organization. They've gained leadership in about two or three others. And it's really a concern to people in Washington, London, and Brussels, and Tokyo that the, the Chinese are now trying to assert more control over the UN and UN agencies. Talk to us a little bit about what you think the motivation is for their engagement in peacekeeping. So when I read the list of the top 10 countries, many are low-income developing countries who see the peacekeeping uh, ventures as a way to generate revenue for their militaries. China doesn't need revenue for its military, so what's the motivation to expand its footprint in combat zones and, and elsewhere? I have a theory that I'd like also to see if you can include, is that the Chinese have never really had combat experience in the past, say, really since, I'm seeing, I think the last real war that they had was with Vietnam in 1979, if I can remember correctly. So these peacekeeping operations increasingly provide them the opportunity to test out their logistics, you put their equipment out to use, get their command structure, supply lines, do all the things that they couldn't do in peacetime. They now have an opportunity on a small scale to, to actually play that out. So that's a bunch of questions wrapped up in one about their motivations and whether or not 
these peacekeeping operations offer the PLA training opportunities and exercises that they simply can't do in other parts of the world or even at home? No, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think you can sort of think about the Chinese interests and motivations for peacekeeping deployment in a variety of ways. I think there are some very practical operational benefits, um, exactly as you note, um, that China hasn't been in a hot war, you know, hot contact since the Sino-Vietnamese War of 1979. Um, and as much as contemporary peacekeeping may resemble conflict, for better or for worse, um, hot conflict, that peacekeeping itself provides then a very useful platform um, in order to deploy your troops to gain some type of combat operational experience in a internationally acceptable format, i.e. as a peacekeeper, not as a combatant um, involved in a conflict that many states might have opinions about. Um, and this type of experience, if we think back to the 1990s, I mean, you could read accounts where Chinese peacekeepers concluded that deploying on mission was a very good learning experience. They learned how to use GPS. They learned how to drive in different types of conditions that they couldn't find locally um, or within their standard training at home. Um, so very practical concerns. They, you know, they understood how to deal with different types of local disease, etc., that you wouldn't have been exposed to had you been supporting um, Chinese security concerns closer to home, for example. Um, also, you have to think about the operational experiences, not just limited to experiences in the field. China served as a force commander now three times, so the most senior military position in the field, so linking back to a more political role. Um, they've had dozens of their own troops deploy through UN headquarters, you know, as, as a loaned officer. Um, and so there are these particular benefits. And of course, you know, very importantly, also these benefits of interoperability. So the chance to train and work alongside other militaries as a military partner. Um, and there are real discussions right now about the direction of where peacekeeping is going. So this more recent interest about sort of doing peacekeeping in a so-called smart way. So it means to try and understand how they can better collect information and utilize the means of sharing information more efficiently. So this type of discussion, again, we're not talking about some C4ISR um, computer AI method yet, but there is this discussion moving peacekeeping out of its sort of 1990s clunking framework. So again, there are these sort of very practical operability, interoperability, operational experiences. Um, there's also a host of other things that are also very beneficial for China when it comes to deploying to peacekeeping. So, for example, peacekeeping is a very useful reference point for China to show that it is a responsible player and to show that this means that, they, of course, they deploy the most troop, con troop contributions out of the P5. Again, as a reference point, you know, the U.S. is logging in at 78th out of 119 TCCs and France is currently logging in at 30th out of 119 TCCs. So China is well ahead by standing in at ninth at the moment. But won't the U.S. then claim that they are the major funder for US peacekeeping, uh, UN peacekeeping operations? Well, I think the, the U.S. has its own unique relationship with peacekeeping. I think in three part, one, they've had a very poor experience, obviously, in the 1990s in Somalia, and they've never really come back since. Um, two, the American argument is that by deploying a handful of troops, they deploy their real force multipliers. So you get one U.S. colonel on a mission, and this U.S. colonel can really pull the weight in a way that if you had a hundred troops come in that this U.S. colonel can do far more. 
Um, and again, the US has the argument that they pay the largest budget if and when they actually make the payment on time. So again, it's a different type of model. And China's very clear that they are the number one contributor. They don't just pay, they actually go play. And this is very different. You know, you notice that out of the P5, the other members are very keen to design mandates, to do the politicking, to do the debates at the council. But then they're not the ones turning up on the field and trying to understand how they can implement these very complex um, mandates, these very complex um, concepts of operations. And we also have to remember, too, that China made massive commitments, additional commitments to the UN peacekeeping regime back in 2015. Um, Xi Jinping himself on record discussing this, and China's made a very good effort to actually follow through. Um, so, you know, we're talking about establishing their very particular efforts to have these peacekeeping standby forces of 8,000 troops. So you have a rapid reaction capability that they've made efforts to establish this $1 billion US dollar peace and development fund of which they have earmarked and spent um, some of the budget regarding peacekeeping issues. And of course, the $100 million given in aid towards the African Union regarding peacekeeping questions. So again, it's a means to show that China leads in a way that is different from sort of the US or other European players in that China is looking to try and pose itself as a peaceful, distinctly different, um, crucial player regarding a smooth functioning of international peace and security. And it's again, very important to note that they don't just deploy to a peacekeeping mission for one or two years. Over the last couple of decades, you've really seen a real sort of deployment happens on day one. And if you come back to the peacekeeping mission five, six years later, they're still there. And so Rosemary Foote does write about this, that there is this sort of constancy in the way that they deploy, and that actually is still quite different. So again, it really emphasizes China's commitments to multilateralism, especially in this time of US rejection of multilateralism. And all of this still holds, even as these mega missions in Haiti and Cote d'Ivoire, et cetera, are closing or about to be wound down. So thinking of Unamid, where peacekeeping itself is going into a shrinking footprint overall. Um, that China can still say, well, regardless of that, we're still a top 10 player. And I think this is a very, very valuable moment for China, a very val valuable focal point for China to point to and to emphasize its role in global security provision. One of the core tenets of, of Chinese foreign policy is the, the idea that they don't interfere in the, the domestic issues of foreign countries. How do they finesse their peacekeeping to make it actually fit in with this non-intervention policy? That's a great question, Kobus. I think they can work with this in a number of ways. Um, there are incidences where China has worked very hard to make sure that peacekeeping support is offered by the host state um, strategically and also operationally. So if you think back to setting up the UNAMID mission um, back at the end of 2007, China was instrumental, instrumental in sort of wrangling that fig leaf of consent out of Sudan. And they were then instrumental in terms of maintaining that consent out of Sudan when Sudan started to become difficult about accepting certain contingents or certain contingents were not acceptable by Sudan. Um, China was instrumental in terms of making that consent real and operational and useful. So they have you know, a very extensive diplomatic network. I certainly don't have to explain this to both of you. But, um, but because China has an open mind in terms of which states it's willing to work with, and it then has a very unique 
hand to play in terms of working with these so-called pariahs and the ability at times to sort of wrangle that consent. So even out of these more recalitrant international players, China is in a very unique position to try and push them towards giving consent. Another mechanism that China can use is also turning to what regional members are interested in. So even if host state consent might be contentious, if there's regional support, then that can be used again as justification for China's ability to um, operate and support a peacekeeping mission that frankly has um, a very sort of sketchy understanding of consent and practice. And then, of course, there are the shifting understandings about what non-interference means and sort of the evolving understanding about this is not interference, but it's China helping and supporting. And so there is a debate amongst sort of the Chinese foreign policy watching community in this space about how the idea of non-interference is perhaps shifting just on the margins as China tries to make sense of its involvement globally um, within its sort of five principles of peaceful coexistence approach. Correct me if I'm wrong here, just so I understand about this non-interference issue, that a, a UN peacekeeping operation can only occur at the invitation of the host government. So in, in the, under the, the multilateral umbrella of the United Nations, then it's not China intervening into another country. It's the United Nations, and China is just one actor within the United Nations community taking part in that. That's how they reconcile the fact that they can deploy troops to a foreign country without actually crossing the line of their non-intervention policy. Is that, is that an accurate understanding of it? Well, I think there are two things, Eric. I think there is, China's very clear that they only deploy to peacekeeping through the United Nations. China has no other alternate platform. So it's not like Russia, where it has intervened in Crimea and it's now rehatted this operation as a peacekeeping operation. It is not like the European Union that has its own alternate platform, its own European Rapid Reaction Force. It's not like the United States, where it has an alternate alliance structure like NATO, and obviously China is not interested in going it alone um, the way that the Americans have initially if they have to start an operation even without UN support. So you're right that it's very clear that Beijing only operates through the United Nations platform in regards to peacekeeping. That said, though, um, not all peacekeeping missions have strategic consent, i.e. the consent given on paper by the host state, or again, de facto consent, i.e. how it operates on the ground day to day. Um, you have these Chapter 7 peacekeeping missions that regardless of host state consent, the UN is going to intervene to, at these times, um, enforce normally a very robust peacekeeping mandate regardless of consent. And this is where the rub is for Beijing, that Beijing has deployed on these missions regardless of there being consent. But again, I want to emphasize that it's not that China's ignored this consent issue entirely. They have had creative ways in their diplomatic toolkit to at times cajole, wrangle, and get consent in ways that other players have not been able to. So again, I think of this seminal case of Darfur at the end of 2007, and China's role was instrumental in sort of getting that consent out of the Sudanese and maintaining that consent, even at times when it appeared quite brittle. Um, and again, when it appears like consent might be difficult to get to, China also has reached back to take into account what regional organizations say about what the host state should be doing. And that has been pointed to at times as justification enough. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. 
Follow the ACRP on Twitter at VitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. How does um, China balance the issue of, of protecting Chinese interests and Chinese citizens overseas with its peacekeeping work? Like during the time when he when it um, it deployed to South Sudan, there were frequent allegations that that the deployment was in fact a, a, a way of, of kind of riding a multi a multilateral effort to towards actually you know protecting Chinese. Chinese interests there. Um, is that a fair assessment at all? And is there any way where these two these two kind of issues overlap? Sure. So maybe it's better, Kobus, if I break this question down a little bit. I think um, I still think it's important to note that while deploying to peacekeeping is a very noble cause, I'm a little bit skeptical. Perhaps call me jaded to think that any state entirely deploys out of a hundred percent altruism. Um, I think there's always a touch of self-interest operating in some ways. So I think that complaint about China's own self-interests could be lobbied and could be, you know, lobbed back at a host of other states that deploy as troop contributors too. So I think sort of that skeptical comment to begin with. Um, This concern about protecting Chinese interests has become of increasing importance since the Libya conflict of 2011. This increasing prominence now about the need to protect Chinese nationals overseas and Chinese interests overseas. Um, But I think that connection between what peacekeeping does to further that is still a little bit unclear. So while Chinese officials are quite clear that they're meant to collaborate with Chinese institutions and organizations, you know, understand more recently, they've been trying to understand how many Chinese are living in this particular host country? Can they offer some type of security training or some type of um, hotline in case there's an issue? This has only been a more recent development in regards to peacekeeping. If we turn back a little bit and we think about China's deployment to the MINUSMA mission in Mali, um, China had to explain to many upset Chinese domestically that even when there was an attack, a terrorist attack in Mali, that this was not the mandate of the Chinese units deployed to that MINUSMA peacekeeping mission to address and solve and protect those Chinese hurt in the terrorist attack. The mandate was to focus upon the peacekeeping efforts within Mali. And so this is already sort of an indicative shift that they had to explain. They wrote a number of op-eds that circulated within the Chinese media sphere trying to explain what peacekeeping does that yes, it's meant to provide some type of overall international peace and security benefit, but it's operating within a rather restrictive mandate. Now, at the same time, though, it's important to note that since that particular MINUSMA outburst, um, that there have been efforts made now to better coordinate on the ground between these different peacekeeping assets and their local population, again, out of this sort of growing recognition that protecting Chinese abroad is becoming one of the tasks, again, of the Chinese state. I'm glad you brought up the issue of media and how they're communicating to various stakeholders, because as Kobus mentioned at the top of our discussion, uh, there have been a, a lot of new media events that have come out. One is this new documentary Uh, That looks a lot and sounds a lot like Wolf Warrior 2, but okay. Uh, Blue Defensive Line, interestingly enough, it was released on the same day as the White Papers. (laughs) I always think these things are just, you you know, there's no coincidences in China, but let's take a listen to uh, Blue Defensive Line. (laughs) 
youngest country is tearing itself apart. A split between President Salva Kiir and his Vice President Riek Machar tore apart the country. South Sudan is the most dangerous place in the world for aid workers. So it feels a lot less like a, a Ken Burns documentary and a lot more like your uh, your next action movie, but that was really designed for a domestic Chinese audience. At the same time, they're using their traditional propaganda mechanisms like CGTN to tell a very different story. And this is a clip that just came out last week about, about the story of China's peacekeeping, what they call martyrs in South Sudan. <laughs> This story is to commemorate two Chinese peacekeeping martyrs, Yang Xiupeng and Li Lei. They died in South Sudan for global peace and friendship. South Sudan is known as one of the most turbulent countries in the world. The mission of Chinese peacekeepers here is to protect the safety of refugee camps. Local time, July 10th, 2000. So, Courtney, you heard a little bit of the language from the white paper in that, in that last clip from CGTN. There we have two pieces of, of media, propaganda, uh, directed at two very different audiences. One super polished, very engaging. The other quite dull, traditional propaganda that really nobody looks at, but the Chinese love to create. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you think the Chinese are trying to do and how they communicate, rather than just use uh, op-eds and columns like you mentioned in the in previous eras. They're now turning to digital media and broadcast media. Well, I think this question for me goes back to this question of narrative and the way that China is trying to tell a story about what its peacekeepers do and the expectations for their peacekeepers and the reality and the difficulties of what they face. Um, I really think up until this most recent time, there was a very strong narrative that Chinese peacekeepers never fail their mission. Um, a narrative that they are representative of the motherland and the UN and showing that serving in the UN is a matter of real glory for these PLA troops. Um, and you can read sort of the sub-literature, the sub-narrative, if you go and sort of read small books produced by these independent printing houses. They really write about this very vivid, fast-moving, cheek-by-jowl account of all of these Chinese peacekeepers' heroism and their esprit de corps. So in the face of difficulty, they rally together and they serve the people in the host nation and they serve the motherland very proudly. But if I can interrupt you there very quickly about the narrative, only because it felt to me like it was a little bit of a reaction to the accounts in 2016 that Chinese peacekeepers actually abandoned their posts. Uh, they were seen to be fleeing out of fear. And boy, they got a lot of negative press from what happened there. Now, the Chinese vehemently dispute those accounts, but NGOs and the international media seem to be pretty confident that that's in fact what happened. Did that play into that narrative that you were trying to, you were trying to explain in terms of what they were trying to overcome in terms of the skepticism that may be out there about Chinese finishing their mission? Well, I think this is where the narrative has a problem now, because it's a very straightforward story if you are an enabler troop 
and you are deploying to provide medical benefits, to build roads, to drill wells, um, you can very clearly say that we have dug so many wells, we have paved thousands of kilometers of road, and we have served this many medical needs for this many patients in this set time period. It gets very difficult when you move into this new phase that China's been in since 2013, when they deploy sort of the teeth of the peacekeeping effort, not the tail, that they actually start to deploy these types of combat troops. And if we think back to where Beijing was in 2016, um, that in this mission in UNMIS, in this you know mid-2016 flare-up, it was a very difficult time. Um, two Chinese peacekeepers were killed, as that clip notes. Um, and unfortunately, that second Chinese peacekeeper was left to bleed to death, even though the next UN base was only 15 kilometers away. Um, and again, five other Chinese peacekeepers were injured in the attacks. But if you think back to the first response, um, the PRC military said that they were deeply astonished, quote, deeply astonished um, to have seen these attacks occur. And so I think, you know, sort of indicative that they weren't anticipating, perhaps, that they would be stuck in this type of mission. And this is why I think now we are dealing with a new type of narrative that is starting to be formed, where again, there is going to be a greater effort made to try and explain what current peacekeeping conditions, peacekeeping conditions can look like. And sometimes they are very combative. Even though China has a good relationship with the host state, it can still be quite difficult. And again, I cannot emphasize um, this 2016 turning point in the sense that many Chinese nationals are at home were apparently quite shocked and quite surprised to see such an image of these caskets returning home, et cetera, um, especially because the narrative up to that point had been very carefully curated, this narrative about elite troops receiving praise and peacekeeping medals, et cetera. So the fact that they're going to have to readjust our understanding for what Chinese troops do is indicative, again, that one of the key audiences that Beijing is trying to engage with is still the domestic audiences at home. Because again, that expectation setting is again very important. And I completely agree with you. Um, they've been very clear that they dispute the claims about what happened in July of 2016 and the UNMIS mission. Um, they fought back and they've completely dismissed a number of these reports written by civil society watchdogs, um, the reports produced by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and UNMIS, they had a joint study. Um, and again, China's been pushing back on this quite strongly. But I do have to emphasize two points. It wasn't just China that was critiqued. This is an overall debate that's gone on for decades about troop performance. And another very important point, um, which I think sometimes gets lost in all of this debate, is that when some states take a hit like this in peacekeeping, they might wind down their troop contributions and maybe return to peacekeeping at a later date. China's move was to rotate those units out and rotate new units in. And again, this is a very different type of approach. They're not in this, as you note right at the start, Eric, they're not interested in trying to recoup this money. So it's not driven by this point, but I think the fact that China maintained their positions and tried to better understand what they could do um, in South Sudan, and again, the white paper talks about this, that there were issues in 2017 in South Sudan, and the white paper writes about the efforts made by Chinese troops. In two or three sentences, it does discuss this. So I think, again, it's very important to note that China's maintained its presence despite these criticisms, um, which again indicates perhaps an interest in trying to understand how they can better operate on the ground, especially under these very tense conditions when consent is frankly quite contentious. As you mentioned, of, of the P5, China is, is really the, the one that, that seems 
particularly active in sending troops. Um, and, you know, there, there's a general kind of high level of engagement, you know, from China with the UN across a whole bunch of different different areas. Is, in, in peacekeeping particularly, is greater Chinese engagement translating into shifts in UN thinking about peacekeeping? Is, is there are, are certain kind of Chinese approaches to peacekeeping starting to, to be, you know, to, to move into the UN system? Well, I think there's an answer that sort of says yes and no. Put it this way, Beijing's been very, very consistent about its belief about having this sort of peacekeeping principles, the original principles, the Hamish Gold principles that we must all still refer to. So consent of the host state, consent of the parties, use of force only for defensive purposes and impartiality while on the ground. Um, so these aren't necessarily new. But China has spent significant time working and re-emphasizing the need to maintain to these principles, despite peacekeeping having, perhaps not at this point, but over the last sort of 20, 30 years, a increasing effort to get into robust peacekeeping, peace enforcement missions, i.e. those Chapter 7 missions that don't have strategic consent or operational consent, um, and also to sort of remind the UN about the relevance of regional organizations in terms of supporting and bolstering peacekeeping efforts. So these may not appear like new additions, but China's been very consistent in terms of pushing for these to be sort of touchstone principles as bedrock approaches to how we think about peacekeeping in practice. At the same time, China has had a number of innovations. Um, China is a state-centric, state-sovereignty-first player at the United Nations. So they are very concerned to make sure that all questions come back to the United Nations. The United Nations is the fulcrum to understand how we can best do global governance. And so China has made a real effort um, in terms of bringing in its regional efforts under the UN umbrella regarding these peacekeeping efforts. At the same time, China has made new moves in terms of trying to understand these sort of ongoing debates. So again, about this um, contingent owned equipment, how one gets reimbursed. So if you deploy your helicopter units, how you actually reimbursed, how you actually treated as a troop contributor in this particular way, which has been a long festering issue at the United Nations. But now that China's backing it, it has helped revive this discussion yet again. And again, it brings that certain type of nonchalance because it is a P5 member and it has that role designing the mandate, voting for the, voting for the mandate in a way that even key TCCs like China, like Bangladesh, like Ethiopia, like India cannot. Um, and I think again, on this sort of last point, we have seen movements, I don't want to overemphasize this in this peacekeeping space, but again, China has a certain level of skepticism about these, as they call them, so-called universal human rights. And again, you've seen these movements where China has, in concert with the United States and Russia, made an effort to chip away at these human rights officer billets within peacekeeping missions. So trying to separate the role that peacekeeping plays in terms of doing human rights monitoring. But we're really talking about three billets. We're not talking about hundreds at this point. So again, there is sort of this slow move. And if there's any truth to these rumors about China's alleged interest in moving into the Department of Peace Operations, then I think we're very likely to see a much stronger tie in terms of trying to bring this shared future, this win-win cooperation approach into peacekeeping. Very quickly before we go, because I know you're very busy, just one last question about how Chinese peacekeeping at the UN 
plays into the broader U.S.-China conflict that we're starting to see unfold. And in fact, the United Nations, as we mentioned at the top of the show this week, was yet another arena for U.S.-China competition. Uh, you're talking about the, the the Chinese expanding their presence and their influence in the United Nations peacekeeping uh, dynamic. The United States has long seen that the United Nations is one of its spheres of influence, but at the same time, it has this awkward relationship with it. It's the largest contributor of money, but it also is sees it in very skeptical terms. Uh, the U.S. withdrew from the World Health Organization. It also was threatened to re remove itself from a number of committees. It removed itself from the U.N., Human Rights Committee as well. So there's a lot of this complicated relation between the United States and China at the UN. Looking forward now, given the, the state of the, the conflict that's gearing up between these two countries, how will peacekeeping play into that, do you think, very quickly? I think we are entering a phase, very lamentably, where these sort of G2 rivalries that have previously been kept out of this UN space are really coming into play. Um, and in part, this is very much driven by the Trump administration's disdain for globalism, its disdain for this um, multilateralism, um, which is unfortunately occurring just at a time where Beijing is really doubling down. And we've seen this steady increase um, in the role of China now leading sort of reform of the global governance system that China wants to play a center stage role now in terms of global governance. So I think peacekeeping might be one space relatively insulated given that America has a relatively limited peacekeeping footprint. Um, and America has been working quite consistently about trying to right size peacekeeping budgets, etc. So in many ways, this does suit um, China's drive to think about efficiency also. So there are some harmonies there. But I think we can't emphasize enough this sort of multilateral breakdown, and this is a real concern, um, especially because peacekeeping is, again, one of these cross-cutting issues where you have to be very cautious that peacekeepers don't bring in health concerns upon their deployment, especially now that we're thinking about COVID-19. Um, so this is, again, one of these areas where greater cooperation is better. But I think, unfortunately, beyond the peacekeeping space, the trend is looking pretty bad in terms of how the G2 try and communicate and work with each other. Um, so I'm not going to hold my breath yet for good news, I guess, at this point. Well, Courtney Fung is an assistant professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong, my proud alma mater. Uh, she's also an associate fellow at Chatham House in London, and she is the author of Providing for Global Security, Implications of China's Combat Troop Deployment to UN Peacekeeping. If you are interested in this topic, this is a must-read paper, uh, so I, I highly recommend it. And Courtney, thank you so much for taking the time to break all this down for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much again, Kobus and Eric, for having me on the podcast. Kobus, the white paper came out at a time when the United Nations is in this really fascinating period of transition and flux because the United States, under the Trump administration, but to some extent, this was a process that began even after that. Obama, remember, came into office with the mandate to focus on domestic issues and to untangle America's involvement in places like the Middle East and South Asia. So the United States is pulling back. The Chinese clearly see an opportunity to fill that vacuum to some extent. How much, we don't really know. Courtney said in our discussion after we finished recording that the fear of the Chinese capture of the UN is overplayed in the United States. But at the, at the end of the day, to some extent, that's happening. 
and whether or not it captures the wrong word or the right word, I'm not sure the way to describe it, but Chinese influence within the United Nations appears to be growing. It is a strategy that they're pursuing, and peacekeeping will definitely be a part of that. One of the key factoids that I didn't mention in our discussion is that when we look at uh, current Chinese deployments of peacekeeping operations around the world, eight out of 13 are actually in Africa. So Africa is a very important priority to Beijing when it comes to peacekeeping. Yeah, that that's very interesting. I mean, you know, it, it also feeds into la- wider scale Chinese thinking about the role of development and peace or the inter- in the action between development and peace, you know, frequently pushing the idea that development should be kickstarted even as the peacekeeping process is, is underway. Um, and, you know, so so that kind of focus on, on development and trying to aid development is this interesting feature of Chinese foreign policy. Um, and it's, it's one that particularly kind of chimes well in Africa, not only because Africa is itself obsessed with development, but but also because that's something that actually is is frequently lacking in, in you know from other major players. I was thinking throughout our conversation today with Courtney about Lena Ben Abdallah's book that we spoke with her about. Uh, she's the Wake Forest University professor who's been talking about the military to military relations. And although UN peacekeeping is not a bilateral engagement, nonetheless, when you've got a Chinese combat division or combat group there, uh, they're going to engage with their local hosts. It's an extension of military to military ties. What role do you think that plays in the peacekeeping operations in the UN in terms of China's desire to further enrich its military to military ties in places like Africa? Well, you know, I'm no no UN insider, um, but it, it from from my perspective, it, it has to it has to help in some kind of way to you know to, to just build kind of informal connections between different militaries, between the Chinese military and host government. Um, I, you know, I, I can see from the Chinese perspective, you know, there's a lot of danger and costs involved, but but purely in terms of of building kind of relationships between you know between the Chinese military and and the rest of the world I can see that this must be invaluable you know because because it just creates like many many different levels of cooperation and it also gives Chinese um, soldiers the, the the opportunity to experience this in real life and to work out how to do it in real life and to be fair the United States and Europe are also very active in military engagement in Africa not as much in the UN space Africom which is the United States, uh, vehicle for, for, for engaging Africa. That's the, the Africa command. They do enormous amounts on a bilateral basis. And so that is something very important. Interestingly, though, when Mozambique now reached out to the European Union for military help in its fight against ISIS in northern Mozambique, it didn't go to AFRICOM and it didn't go to the United Nations. I just thought that was an interesting choice for them to go to the EU uh, I, I don't know what that what came out of that, but as you pointed out, when the Chinese are on the ground in those UN peacekeeping operations, it's another point of contact. And one of the themes of our discussion on this podcast over the past 10 years is on so many different levels, the Chinese seem to be interacting with various stakeholders uh, in Africa. And military is one area where it's going to grow. The UN is going to be one of the vehicles that they do that through. So that'll do it for this edition of the podcast. If you are interested in the discussion that we had today with Courtney and UN politics and all the different things that are going on between the United States, China, Europe, related to both peacekeeping and also just general geopolitics, 
We cover this every single day in our newsletter, and we did a deep dive today on UN politics and what's going on on human rights. We're going to have a future show on that, but in the meantime, we're writing about it every single day, trying to get first... Uh, first-person analysis, first-person sourcing, primary sourcing, so that if you're a researcher, an analyst, a journalist, and you need good quotes to put into your research and your papers, uh, you can. this newsletter is right there for you to use it. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. We'll let you try it out $3 for three months just to see if you like it. After three months, if you don't like it, you can cancel any time. But we would really be so honored for you to be a part of our growing reader community around the world. So until next week, Kobus and I will be back again with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>